are listening to the most original talk radio station anywhere. We are L.A. Talk Radio at latalkradio.com. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. You are now entering the Sapphire Planet. You are now in the Sapphire Planet. The Manhattan Project was a research and development program led by the United States with participation from the United Kingdom and Canada that produced the first atomic bomb during World War II. From 1942 to 1946, the project was under the direction of Major General Leslie Groves of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The Army component of the project was designated the Manhattan District. Manhattan gradually superseded the official code name Development of Substitute Materials for the entire project. Along the way, the Manhattan Project absorbed its earlier British counterpart, Tube Alloys. The Manhattan Project began modestly in 1939, but grew to employ more than 130,000 people and cost nearly $2 billion, roughly equivalent to $25.8 billion in today's money. Over 90% of the cost was for building factories and producing the fissionable materials with less than 10% for development and production of the weapons. Research and production took place at more than 30 sites, some secret across the United States, the United Kingdom, and Canada. Two types of atomic bomb were developed during the war. First was a relatively simple 
gun-type fission weapon was made by using uranium-235, an isotope that makes up only 0.7% of natural uranium. Since uranium-235, it is chemically identical to the main isotope, uranium-238, and has almost the same mass, it proved difficult to separate. Three methods were employed for uranium enrichment, electromagnetic, gaseous, and thermal. Most of this work was performed at Oak Ridge, Tennessee. In parallel with the work on uranium was an effort to produce plutonium. Reactors were constructed at Hanford, Washington, in which uranium was irradiated and transmuted into plutonium. The plutonium was then chemically separated from the uranium. The gun-type design proved impractical to use with plutonium, so a more complex implosion-type weapon was developed in a concerted design and construction effort at the project's weapons research and design laboratory in Los Alamos, New Mexico. The first nuclear device ever detonated was an implosion-type bomb at the Trinity test conducted at New Mexico's Amagordo Bombing and Gunnery Range on July 16, 1945. Little Boy, a gun-type weapon, and the implosion-type Fat Man were used in the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, respectively. The Manhattan Project operated under a blanket of tight security, but Soviet atomic spies still penetrated the program. It was also charged with gathering intelligence on German nuclear energy project though Operations Alsos, Manhattan Project personnel served in Europe, sometimes behind enemy lines, where they gathered nuclear materials and rounded up German scientists. In the immediate post-war years, the Manhattan Project conducted weapons testing at Bikini Atoll as part of Operation Crossroads developed new weapons, promoted the development of the network of national laboratories, supported medical research into radiology, and laid the foundation for the nuclear navy. It maintained control over American atomic weapons research and production until the formation of the United States Atomic Energy Commission 
in January 1947. In August 1939, prominent physicists Leo Szilard and Eugene Wigner drafted the Einstein-Szilard letter, which warned of the potential development of extremely powerful bombs of a new type. It urged the United States to take steps to acquire stockpiles of uranium ore and accelerate the research of Enrico Fermi and others into nuclear chain reactions. They had it signed by Albert Einstein and delivered to President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Roosevelt called on Lyman Briggs of the National Bureau of Standards to head the Advisory Committee on Uranium to investigate the issues raised by the letter. Briggs held a meeting on October 24, 1939, which was attended by Zillard, Wigner, and Edward Teller. The committee reported back to Roosevelt in November that uranium would provide a possible source of bombs with a destructiveness vastly greater than anything now known. Briggs proposed that the National Defense Research Committee, the NDRC, spend 167000 on research into uranium, particularly the uranium-235 isotope and the recently discovered plutonium. On June 28, 1941, Roosevelt signed Executive Order 8807, which created the Office of Scientific Research and Development, or OSRD, with Vannevar Bush as its director. The office was empowered to engage in large engineering projects in addition to research. The NDRC Committee on Uranium became the S1 Uranium Committee of the OSRD. The word uranium was soon dropped for security reasons. In Britain, Otto Frisch and Rudolf Pirls at the University of Birmingham had made a breakthrough investigating the critical mass of uranium-235 in June of 1939. Their calculations indicated that it was within an order of magnitude of 10 kilograms, which was small enough to be carried by a bomber of the day. The March 1940 Frisch Perils Memorandum 
initiated the British Atomic Bomb Project and its MOD Committee, which unanimously recommended pursuing the development of an atomic bomb. One of its members, the Australian physicist Mark Oliphant, flew to the United States in late August 1941 and discovered that data provided by the MOD committee had not reached key American physicists. Oliphant then set out to find out why the committee's findings were apparently being ignored. He met with the Uranium Committee and visited Berkeley, California, where he spoke persuasively to Ernest O. Lawrence. Lawrence was sufficiently impressed to commence his own research into uranium. He, in turn, spoke to James B. Conant, Arthur Compton, and George Pegram. Oliphant's mission was, therefore, a success. Key American physicists were now aware of atomic bombs' potential. At a meeting between President Roosevelt, Vannevar Bush, and Vice President Henry A. Wallace on 9 October 1941, the President approved the atomic program. To control it, he created a top policy group consisting of himself, although he never attended the meeting, Wallace, Bush, Conant, Secretary of War Henry L. Stimson, and the Chief of Staff of the Army, General George Marshall. Roosevelt chose the Army to run the project rather than the Navy, as the Army has the most experience with management of large-scale construction projects. He also agreed to coordinate the efforts with that of the British, and on October 11th, he sent a message to Prime Minister Winston Churchill, suggesting that they correspond on atomic matters. The S-1 Committee held its first meetings on December 18, 1941, pervaded by an atmosphere of enthusiasm and urgency in the wake of the attack on Pearl Harbor and the subsequent declaration of war by the United States on Japan and Germany. Work was proceeding on three different techniques for isotope separation to separate uranium-235 from uranium-238. Lawrence and his team at the University of California, Berkeley, investigated electromagnetic separation, while Edgar Murphy 
and Jesse Wakefield Beam's team looked into gaseous diffusion at Columbia University. And Philip Alberson directed research into thermal diffusion at the Carnegie Institution of Washington and later the Naval Research Laboratory. Murphy was also the head of an unsuccessful separation project using centrifuges. Meanwhile, there were two lines of research into nuclear reactor technology, with Harold Urey continuing research into heavier water at Columbia, while Arthur Compton brought the scientists working under his supervision at Columbia University and Princeton University to the University of Chicago, where he organized the Metallurgical Laboratory in early 1942 to study plutonium and reactors using graphite as a neutron moderator. Briggs, Compton, Lawrence, Murphy, and Urey met on May 23, 1942 to finalize the S-1 committee's recommendation, which called for all five technologies to be pursued. This was approved by Bush, Conant, and Brigadier General William D. Steyer, the Chief of Staff of Major General Briam B. Somerville's Services of Supply, who had been designated the Army's representative on nuclear matters. Bush and Conant then took the recommendations to the top policy group with a budget proposal for $54 million for the construction by the United States Army Corps of Engineers, $31 million for the research and development by OSRD, and $5 million for the contingencies in the fiscal year 1943. The top policy group, in turn, sent it to the President on June 17, 1942, and he approved it by writing OKFDR OK on the document. Compton asked the theoretical physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer of the University of California, Berkeley, to take over research into fast neutron calculations the key to calculations of critical mass and weapon detonation from Gregory Barit, who had quit on May 18, 1942 because of concerns over lax operational security. John H. Manley, a physicist at the Metallurgical Laboratory, was assigned to assist Oppenheimer by contacting and coordinating experimental physics groups scattered across the country. Oppenheimer and Robert Serber of the University of Illinois examined the problems of neutron diffusion, how neutrons moved in a nuclear chain reaction, 
and hydrodynamics, how the explosion produced by a chain reaction might behave. To review this work and the general theory of fission reactions, Oppenheimer convened meetings at the University of Chicago in June and the University of California, Berkeley in July 1942 with theoretical physicists Hans Beth, John Van Vleck, Edward Teller, Emil Konominsky, Robert Serber, Stan Frankel, and Edelderd C. Nelson, the latter three former students of Oppenheimer, and experimental physicists Felix Bloch, Emilio Segre, John Manley, and Edward McMillan. They tentatively confirmed that a fission bomb was theoretically possible. There were still many unknown factors. The properties of pure uranium-235 were relatively unknown, as were those of plutonium, an element that had only been discovered in February 1941 by Glenn Seabrog and his team. The scientists at the Berkeley conference envisioned creating plutonium in nuclear reactors where uranium-238 atoms absorbed neutrons that had been emitted from fissioning uranium-235 atoms. At this point, no reactor had been built, and only tiny quantities of plutonium were available from cyclotrons. Even by December 1943, only two milligrams had been produced. There were many ways of arranging the fissile material into critical mass. The simplest was shooting a syringical plug into a sphere of active material with a tamper, dense material that would focus neutrons inward and keep the reacting mass together to increase efficiency. They also explored designs involving spheroids, a primitive form of implosion, suggested by Richard C. Tolman, and the possibilities of autocatalytic methods, which would increase the efficiency of the bomb as it exploded. Considering the idea of the fission bomb theoretically settled, at least until more experimental data was available, the Berkeley Conference then turned in a different direction. Edward Teller pushed for discussion of a more powerful bomb, the super bomb, now usually referred to as a hydrogen bomb, which would use the explosion force of a detonating fission bomb to ignite a nuclear fusion reaction in deuterium and tritium. Teller proposed scheme after scheme, but Beth refused each one. The fusion idea was put aside to concentrate on producing fission bombs. 
Teller also raised the speculative possibility that an atomic bomb might ignite the atmosphere because of a hypothetical fusion reaction of nitrogen nuclei. Beth calculated that it could not happen, and a report co-authored by Teller showed that no self-propagating chain of nuclear reactions is likely to be started. In Serber's account, however, Oppenheimer mentioned it to Arthur Compton, who, quote, didn't have enough sense to shut up about it, end of quote. And somehow, it got into the documents that went to Washington, and to this day, has never been laid to rest. The chief engineer, Major General Eugene Reibold, selected Colonel James C. Marshall to head the Army's part of the project in June 1942. Marshall created a liaison office in Washington, D.C., but established his temporary headquarters on the 18th floor of 270 Broadway in New York where he could draw on administrative support from the Corps of Engineers, North Atlantic Division. It was close to the Manhattan office of Stone and Webster, the principal project contractor, and to Columbia University. He had permission to draw on his former command, the Syracuse District, for staff, and he started with Lieutenant Carroll Kenneth Nichols who became his deputy. Because most of his task involved construction, Marshall worked in cooperation with the head of the Corps of Engineers, Construction Division, Major General Thomas M. Robbins and his deputy, Colonel Leslie Groves. Ribald, Somerville, and Steyer decided to call the project Development of Substitute Materials, but Groves felt that this would draw attention. Since engineer districts normally carried the name of the city where they were located, Marshall and Groves agreed to name the Army's, Army's component of the project the Manhattan District. This became official on August 13th when Reibold issued the order creating the new district. Informally, it was known as the Manhattan Engineer District, or MED. Unlike other districts, it had no geographic boundaries, and Marshall had the authority of a division engineer. Development of substitute materials remained as the official codename of the project as a whole, but was supplanted over time by Manhattan. Marshall later conceded that, quote, I had never heard of atomic fission, but I know, I did know that you could not build much of a plant, much less four of them for $90 million, end of quote. A single T-38 
TNT plant that Nichols had recently built in Pennsylvania had cost $128 million. Nor were they impressed with the estimates of the nearest order of magnitude, which Groves compared by telling a caterer to prepare for a, a meal for between 10 and 1,000 guests. A survey team from Stone and Webster had already scouted the site for the production plants. The War Production Board recommended sites around Knoxville, Tennessee, an isolated area where the Tennessee Valley Authority could supply ample electric power and the rivers could provide cooling water for the reactors. After examining several sites, the survey team selected one near Elza, Tennessee. Conant advised that it be acquired at once, and Steyer agreed. But Marshall temporized, awaiting the results of Conant's reactor experiments before taking action. Of the prospective process, only Lawrence's electromagnetic separation appeared sufficiently advanced for construction to commence. Marshall and Nichols began assembling the resources they would need. The first step was to obtain a high priority rating for the project. The top ratings were AA1 through AA4 in descending order, although there was also a special AAA rating reserved for emergencies. Rating AA1 and AA2 were for essential weapons and equipment. So Colonel Lucas D. Clay the Deputy Chief of Staff at Services and Supply for Requirements and Resources felt that the highest rating he could assign was AA3, although he was willing to provide AAA ratings on request for critical materials if the need arose. Nichols and Marshall were disappointed. AA3 was the same priority as Nichols' TNT plant in Pennsylvania. Bush became dissatisfied with Colonel Marshall's failure to get the project moving forward, specifically the failure to acquire the Tennessee site. The low priority allocated to the project by the Army and the location of his headquarters in New York City. Bush felt that more aggressive leadership was required and spoke to Harvey Bundy and Generals Marshall, Somerville, and Steyer about his concerns. He wanted the project placed under a senior policy committee with 
a prestigious officer, preferably Steyer, as overall director. Somerville and Steyer selected Groves for this post, informing him on September 17th of his decision and that General Marshall ordered that he be promoted to a Brigadier General, as it was felt that the title General would hold more sway with the academic scientists working on the Manhattan Project. Groves' orders placed him directly under Somerville rather than Ribold, with Colonel Marshall now answerable to Groves. Groves established his headquarters in Washington, D.C. on the fifth floor of the new War Department building, where Colonel Marshall had his liaison office. He assumed command of the Manhattan Project on September 23rd. Later that day, he attended a meeting called by Stimson, which established a military policy committee responsible to the top policy group, consisting of Bush, with Conant as an alternate, Steyer, and Rear Admiral William R. Purnell. Toleman and Conant were later appointed as Grove's scientific advisors. On September 19th, Groves went to Donald Nelson, the chairman of the War Production Board, and asked for broad authority to issue AAA ratings whenever it was required. Nelson initially balked, but quickly caved in when Groves threatened to go to the president. Groves promised not to use the AAA ratings unless it was necessary. It soon transpired that, for the routine requirements of the project, the AAA rating was too high, but the AA-3 rating was too low. After a long campaign, Groves finally received a AA-1 authority on July 1, 1944. One of Grove's early problems was to find a director for Project Y. Project Y was the group that would design and build the bomb. The obvious choice was one of the three laboratory heads, Yuri, Lawrence, or Compton. But they could not be spared. Compton recommended Oppenheimer who was already intimately familiar with the bomb design concepts. However, Oppenheimer had little administrative experience and like and unlike Yuri, Lawrence or Compton had not won a Nobel Prize, which many scientists felt that the head of such an important laboratory should have. There were also concerns about Oppenheimer's security status, 
as many of his associates were communists, including his brother, Frank Oppenheimer, his wife, Kitty Oppenheimer, and his girlfriend, Jean Tatlock. A long conversation on a train in October 1942 convinced Groves and Nichols that Oppenheimer thoroughly understood the issues involved in setting up a laboratory in a remote area and should be appointed as its director. Groves personally waived the security requirements and issued Oppenheimer a clearance on July 20th, 1943. the British and Americans exchanged nuclear information but did not initially combine their efforts. Britain rebuffed attempts by Bush and Conant in 1941 to strengthen cooperation with its own project codename Tube Alloys. However, the United Kingdom did not have the manpower or resources of the United States. And despite its early, early and promising start, Tube Alloys soon fell behind its American counterpart. On July 30th, 1942, Sir John Anderson, the minister responsible, advised Churchill that, we must face the fact that our own pioneering work is a dwindling asset and that unless we capitalize it quickly we shall be outstripped. We now have a real contribution to make a merger. Soon we shall have little or none. By this time the British bargaining position had worsened. Bush and Conant had decided that the United States no longer needed outside help, and they and others on the Bomb Policy Committee wanted to prevent Britain from being able to build a post-war atomic weapon. The committee supported, and Roosevelt agreed to, restricting the flow of information to what Britain could use during the war, especially not bomb design, even if doing so slowed down the American project. The transfer of information to Britain decreased. As Bush and Conant told the British, the order came from the top. By early 1943, the British stopped sending research and scientists to America, and as a result, the Americans stopped all information sharing. The British considered ending the supply of Canadian uranium and heavy water to force the Americans to again share, but Canada needed American supplies to produce them. They investigated 
the possibility of an independent nuclear program, but determined that it could not be ready in time to affect the outcome of the war in Europe. By March 1943, Conant decided that British help would benefit some areas of the project. James Chadwick and one or two other British scientists were important enough that the bomb design team in Los Alamos needed them, despite the risk of revealing weapon design secrets. In August 1943, Churchill and Roosevelt negotiated the Quebec Agreement, which resulted in a resumption of cooperation between scientists working on the same problem. Britain, however, agreed to restrictions on data on the building of large-scale production plants necessary for the bomb. The subsequent Hyde Park Agreement in September 1944 extended this cooperation to the post-war period. The Quebec Agreement, established by the Combined Policy Committee to coordinate the effects of the United States, United Kingdom, and Canada. Stimson, Bush, and Conant served as the American members of the Combined Policy Committee. Field Marshal Sir John Dill and Colonel J.J. Lulin were the British members and C.D. Howe was the Canadian member. Lulin returned to the United Kingdom at the end of 1943 and was replaced on the committee by Sir Ronald Ian Campbell who in turn was replaced by the British ambassador to the United States, Lord Halifax, in early 1945. Sir John Dill died in Washington, D.C. in November 1944 and was replaced both as chief of the British Joint Staff Mission and as a member of the Combined Policy Committee by Field Marshal Sir Henry Maitland Wilson. When cooperation resumed after the Quebec Agreement, the Americans' progress and expenditures amazed the British. The United States already had spent more than one billion dollars. That would be 13.4 billion today, while in 1943 the United Kingdom had spent about half a million pounds. Chadwick thus pressed for British involvement in the Manhattan Project to the fullest extent and abandoned any hopes of a British project during the war. With Churchill's backing, he attempted to ensure that every request from Groves for assistance was honored. The British mission that arrived in the United States in December 1943 included 
Niels Bohr, Otto Frisch, Klaus Fusch, Rudolf Barrels, and Ernest Titterton. More scientists arrived in early 1944, while those assigned to gaseous diffusion left by the fall of 1944. The 35 working with Lawrence at Berkeley were assigned to existing laboratory groups and stayed until the end of the war. The 19 sent to the Los Alamos also join existing groups, primarily related to implosion and bomb assembly, but not the plutonium-related ones. Part of the Quebec Agreement specified that nuclear weapons would not be used against another country without mutual consent. In June 1945, Wilson agreed that the use of nuclear weapons against Japan would be recorded as a decision of the Combined Policy Committee. The Combined Policy Committee was created the Combined Development Trust in June 1944 with Groves as its chairman to procure uranium and thorium ores on international markets. The Belgian Congo and Canada held much of the world's uranium outside Eastern Europe, and the Belgian government in exile was in London. Britain agreed to give the United States most of the Belgian ore, as it could not use most of the supply without restricted American research. In 1944, the Trust purchased 3.4 million pounds of uranium oxide ore from companies operating mines in the Belgian Congo. In order to avoid briefing U.S. Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau Jr. on the project, a special account not subject to the usual auditing and controls was used to hold trust monies. Between 1944 and the time he resigned from the trust in 1947, Groves deposited a total of $37.5 million into this secret trust's account. Groves appreciated the early British atomic research and the British scientists' contribution to the Manhattan Project, but stated that the United States would have succeeded without them. Whether or not he was correct, the British wartime participation was crucial to the success of the United Kingdom's independent nuclear weapons program after the war, when the McMahon Act of 1946 temporarily ended America's nuclear cooperation.
your journey is now ending. You are now leaving the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet. Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.